2023 is here and it's time to plan out your goals to get in the shape of your life this year. Maybe you started your journey this past year or maybe you're looking to make 2023 the year you get the results you've always dreamed of. And if you are, I want to help you. I've been a health and fitness coach for almost a decade now. I've helped thousands of people often online get in the shape of their life and drop the kilos they've been wanting to shed for years. I've helped people transform their bodies, their health, and their minds. And most importantly, I've shown them how they can maintain this on a long-term basis. As your coach, I take care of everything within your health and fitness journey, your training, your nutrition, your cardio, supplementation, etc. But I also look at your journey from a holistic perspective and address your stress, your sleep, your mindset, and ensure you have everything you need to achieve your results. If you're ready to make this the year you get the results you truly want, fill in the application form in the description below. It'll only take you two minutes and I'll be in touch for us to book in a call so we can plan out your journey and put some clear goals in place. If you have any questions about the coaching, feel free to email me or DM me on Instagram, which is at Elliot Hassoon. I'm excited to hear from you and excited to help you transform your body, health, and mind in 2023. Hello team and welcome to episode 341 of the Simply Fit podcast. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Christina Durante. Christina is a professor of marketing at Rutgers Business School and a social psychologist who studies the biology of decision-making and the evolution of female psychology. Living in our modern world comes with many challenges. We're exposed to information like never before. We're exposed to innovation like we've never been before. And we're exposed to different pressures that we've never experienced before. Yet we're still expected to navigate the world we live in with a brain that hasn't really changed that much in many, many centuries. This brings us challenges that may seem small, but are really more impactful than we might think. And in this episode, Christina and I look at how we might navigate these challenges and what we can do about them. In this episode, you can expect to learn what you can do if you're a woman who wants to succeed in her career and have a family, why journaling about your perfect partner and freezing your eggs could well be a solution, along with how you can implement practical strategies to navigate the mismatch between your old brain and the modern reality that we live in. So without further ado, Christina Durante. Christina Durante, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you, Elliot. It's good to be here. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you for making the time today. And for those who may have not come across yourself before or the work that you do, can you give us a little bit about a bit of context of who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. Uh, I am a professor at Rutgers Business School. Um, I'm a social psychology PhD. I consider myself an evolutionary psychologist because uh, most of my research, nearly all of it, applies an evolutionary lens to our modern behavior, be that, you know, how we make friends, what we decide to buy, and you know, when we're at the store, how we choose partners, how parents figure out how to spend their money on their children. It's all looking back at, you know, the way the brain was designed to operate in uh, an environment really that no longer exists, but how is that our old brain operating in our new world. And so most of my research takes that evolutionary bent uh, to it. So why am I in a business school? I'm actually in the marketing department and um, a good portion of my research looks at uh, consumer behavior. Um, and from an evolutionary lens, actually, and I know we're not here to talk about that, but that's why I am a, I'm an evolutionary psychologist uh, in a business school. Uh, at Rutgers. Perfect. And I feel that those two things go hand in hand. I feel like evolutionary psychology goes hand in hand with just about everything. It's like once you open Pandora's box, you just can't stop looking and can't stop discovering things. It's a super fascinating topic. And funnily enough, we are going to touch on the female trade-off today. But the first question I literally had noted down today was how do we find a balance between our evolutionary psychology and the world we live in today in 2023? That was literally my first question today. So that's a great big place to start. Okay. So yeah, let's let's dive in there. Gosh, yeah, that you know that's the big money question, and it's a really overarching you know question that doesn't have a really easy answer because we, you know, we can learn all that there is to learn about the brain, and we can learn even all there is to learn about evolutionary biology, and it's really hard to walk around day to day remembering what your brain is used to seeing compared to what we're seeing in the world now. 
you know, think about the population of people and how closely we live with thousands of others that are strangers, but your brain is categorizing these people as somehow important in your life and you see them on your phone and it's just like, it has gotten to be just out of control. We have these adaptations that are freaking out in our brain, you know? And um, so the question of how do we balance it is one that is uh, of great interest to me finding these like workarounds that, you know, we just have to be, you know, we have to know about them and then consciously put them into action. Uh, thinking about, okay, this is the kind of, uh, temperature fluctuation that my brain and body really like. Let's, you know, let's try to, to, to sometimes be cold and sometimes be warm, you know, and, and these things that we don't want to do, but that our body feels really good when we do it. Um, and then, you know, the, the maladaptive stuff, a lot of the, the shopping that we see is just, you know, is just our desire for status going haywire because we don't, it's really hard to find meaning outside of a small group. And, you know, so now we just strive for status on a constant hamster wheel and then the end result is buying a bunch of stuff you don't need. So anyway, Elliot, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, even, uh, you know, those of us who study this really have to put an effort to make the connection between, um, our, our, what our brains, our old brains are, are wanting or seeing in our new world and how that might be harming our well-being. Do you think that younger children, you're a mom of younger children at the moment, do they, do you think they have an easier time adapting to this than us who are in our thirties, forties and fifties, just due to the fact that they're kind of born into the world of technology now? Obviously, the way that we express status 20, 30 years ago compared to the way we do today is kind of similar in a way, but also different in a way as well. But do they have a better time adapting than we do? So that's a really interesting question. And, you know, of course, you know, our brains are kind of stuck. You know, they're not evolved. There's not a lot of selection pressure anymore. I mean, we innovation is so amazing. Medicine is what it is. And so, you know, they, they're still being born with those brains that have proclivities for, you know, feeling safe in certain environments. That's certainly not our social media environment. So I think that still harms children and they're still processing it in, in, in ways that their brains can't comprehend. But when it comes to, and maybe we'll get into this, the idea of, you know, social norms that become so ingrained in the way we live our lives culturally. You know, we have brains that are wired to um, shift toward what everybody else is doing. You know, that's one big, powerful tool of influence is social proof and, and consensus. And so, uh, if we can shift the social norms, we might be able to shift some of the pressure, for example, off women and, and building wealth and stuff like this. And I think maybe the younger generation is, you know, they're kind of breaking free of that um, a little bit more maybe than some older generation. So it's just a matter of like, in that way, I think that they are freer than maybe we are where we're so conditioned to, you know, listen to the way that things always were. And I think women um, put a lot of pressure on themselves. And I'm hopeful that in my daughter, she's 12, when she gets older, that, um, you know, that there will be more mindfulness of, you know, a balance um, between, I guess, what we might talk about, which is career and family and having, um, and my son, having, you know, an awareness of wanting to also uphold that balance should he get married and have kids absolutely i think that's a fair observation and then the next generation is going to be the one who really plays all this out and see how it works in reality and i hope for the best for them and on that note as well you mentioned that we might touch on career relationships and the potential imbalance we see between the both of those and i think a large portion of your work is dedicated to that you know females feeling like they need to have just about everything you know they need to have a super successful career they need to have the family need to be able to run all of these things at once and there seems to be a fair imbalance and a conflict and a contrast between the two can you touch on that a little bit more for those who maybe have experience of that, but maybe haven't heard about it too much, both from a male perspective and also from a female who's maybe just too busy living it to even realize that it's an issue. <laughs> yeah, there's been some research that shows that women have more life goals than men, 
So, you know, many women, so anytime, just to preface, anytime we talk about behavior, we're thinking about a bell curve. So this might not apply. It's not a blanket statement. It's just on average, uh, women, many women desire family, uh, desire partnership and, you know, children, uh, and want to be, uh, contributing at a high level to the care of that those children and many women also want to pursue their passions and build a career for themselves and build build wealth for themselves um so you know when those you know kind of come together because it's really hard to work on your career and succeed there and also succeed in being you know a caregiver at home and um, and this is when we see this, you know, sort of trade off that women, you know, face where it's like, it's, it's not even really, it, you know, it's like, it's a trade off that's faced by women that's not faced by men nearly as much. And it's more of an internal conflict of feeling guilty about putting briefcase over baby or baby over briefcase. You know, internally, this creates a lot of uh, pressure, you know, within women on themselves and a lot of feeling guilty. And, um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's really what happens for, for many women, especially as they're, you know, climbing, um, their, their ladder during their career. And then when it, when, you know, they get married and have a family, they feel pressure to invest there too. And we live in a society that values nurturance and women warmth, you know, competence, sure too, but we value it more in women than we do in men. And we don't necessarily value as much in women competitive assertiveness, aggression, which is some of what it takes to move up corporately. So women kind of struggle with this. So outwardly facing women feel pressure to be nice and appease. And, and yet in their jobs, they have to be, you know, more aggressive and more competitive and put their foot down more, but they experience backlash for that too. So it's like with at home and within the workplace, it's, it's sort of, it's this double bind that you hear people talk about. It's sort of a double-edged sword. Um, and so, you know, I'm often asked like, well, do women want, why do, you know, do women even really want careers? And the answer is yes, because for most of hominid history, primate history, females were doing whatever they really wanted to do because babies were born pretty capable. And then, you know, and then there was a, a huge, um, you know, growth in the size of the human brain and evolution's workaround was to have babies be born really uncooked, like really like not developed. And so, you know, then at that point, babies need a lot of care and extended childhood. And because women were having the babies and feeding them, that fell to women. And so now women couldn't just do what they wanted to do and, you know, <laughs> roll around in the grass or whatever. I mean, just like males were doing. Uh, females now had to said to were more tethered uh, to a home base, but and 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 also you know this this drove the evolution of women you know women being more nurturing and more empathetic and I should probably say you know females so because we're talking about you know this is a million years old where or where babies began to be born early just so that big brain could could grow and babies could be born. Um, and women still be, be able to walk, you know, give birth to them anyway. So, 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 but that, that part of the brain where women do feel more empathy and are able to, you know, wanting to care for the baby. So this is evolutionary, very beneficial. So you don't kill a baby or hurt a baby. You just want to protect it. That behavior is highly adaptive and women have this more than men, but that is scaffolded over a part of the brain that really becomes interested in all things in the world. And so women have that too. And they also have the desire to, you know, want to be a primary caregiver to a kid. So these two things really um, internally create some psychological conflict for women. So that's part of it. Yeah, I can absolutely imagine. And when reflecting on this, I was trying to think of, of course, we all know that these modern situations come from 
our past, right? The woman would stay home. They, someone has to give birth to the child and someone has to potentially go out and hunt for food or go to war, whatever that might be. But when you look at it and you, I was thinking, okay, well, this is down to the fact that we're just continuing with the way that we have been. But at the same time, is it an outdated problem or is it our current reality in terms of our thoughts? Because when you ask a man, do you want a breadwinning wife or girlfriend? The answer to that question, I would say nine times out of 10 is no. And when you ask a woman and you look at hypergamy and you ask a woman, do you want a stay at home dad? Most of the time, again, nine out of 10 out of 10, the answer is also no. So it's like, are we stuck in the past in the sense of not updating our reality? Cause that's all the way it's always been. Or does it still have some practicality and reality? Uh, I think we're still stuck, you know, just like we're, you know, like we were talking about with the old brains, you know, I think we still are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's another piece of this entire problem. Um, you know, as women move up the corporate ladder, it doesn't open up a pool of husbands that they're interested in who can shore up the housework or care work at home. You know, it not only does the pool not grow, it shrinks. And, and, and along with that is, you know, women's interest in, you know, men who are making less than them and staying at home. So just like you said, there's a problem like, you know, hypergamy has been, uh, you know, in place culturally for a while. uh, And this isn't something that, you know, just goes away overnight. And, um, and it's been a really difficult question for me to tackle, because I often get asked, you know, well, what can we do to, you know, to, to, help, you know, people feel better about, you know, having there be more balance at home or even an imbalance. And, you know, maybe people specialize, partners specialize in different things because we know organizations work better with specialization. Like what can we do and can we change the, you know, the norms and the norms are part of it, but part of it does come built in and, you know, you want a partner who's of, of equal, who's an equal to you. And, um, and for women and, you know, it's really hard to, especially, so I should especially say that if, if you're in a marriage and then the wife starts to make a little more than the husband, this is when there is a bigger problem because it creates more internal conflict because it wasn't there to start with and now it's coming into play. So that's one problem. And then the problem is actually starting, you know, if women remain single and they're, they're climbing the corporate ladder you know, this is shrinking their pool of mates that they feel that are equals that are part that could be life partners. Um, and, and, and so, uh, you know, there's kind of those two problems. Again, we're speaking of a bell curve. So your listeners might say, not me, you know, I, you know, I, ha- I have a, si- a different situation or my sister does or whatever. And certainly that is the case. And, you know, some of these outdated, you know, maybe maladaptive preferences, some people are better able to transform that motivation and, and, you know, sort of restructure their mindset. And it's not a big deal, but for other people, it is. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that many women would definitely experience the conflict. I think there's probably more women experiencing the conflict than those who feel super content with their current circumstances. Obviously, yeah. like you mentioned, there'll be a certain set of people who are super in love with being the nurturing mother and, you know, the career isn't so much of an importance mm-hmm. or it's something I can pick up later, for example, but that's yeah. not going to be the case for many people. So, for example, if a woman is within this certain set of circumstances right now, but she feels like she's maybe losing her relationship, she doesn't feel like she's the best mother in the world and she feels like she really wants to strive in her career but she almost feels a bit of guilt based on that what do you advise her to do yeah that's a really that's okay maybe that's the big money question (laughs) because because i think a lot of women do face that and um and i know that many i mean i kind of felt this way so i'm you know i i think that many women do feel guilt about giving up some of that those tasks that otherwise maybe they even would want to be a part of like driving kids around to you know the kids play a big role so once kids come into the picture this is this becomes more of a problem because there's there's like double the housework like more laundry more food more cooking more driving more setting up play dates 
And, you know, if you, most cities, the, the moms are organizing the play dates, not the husbands. That's very rare to see. And so you, I felt the pressure, you know, to be high performing at my job and then also showing up to school and also, you know, volunteering at school and because all the other moms were doing it. <laughs> and then, so then that's, there's a, that might even trigger a little bit of that, you know, intersexual competition in women just to sort of, you know, show that I'm also good. I'm a good mom, you know, women want to be seen as that and, and that they are investing. The last thing, you know, women want to do is spur the, uh, you know, the, the gossip that goes around with other women, like, oh, did you see, and it's very, you know, undetectable, like, you know, I feel so bad for Christina, she never has enough time, she's so busy that I always have to get Lucy after school or whatever. Um, So it's like, so it kind of starts like very subtle. And that was a killer across evolutionary history for, you know, information, misinformation to be spread. And now it just is like out of control. So I feel that pressure. Other women feel that pressure. So what can they do? Um, Well, you know, be mindful of who you keep close to you in your social network. Try to, you know, really find that, you know, workaround of talking to yourself about like, it's okay that Susan thinks this, you know, I, it's okay. Outsource. I, I try to outsource as much as possible. And if I really feel like I have to be there at school, then groceries are getting delivered that week and we're doing takeout. I'm not cooking or, um, you know, laundry is going to pile up or I'm hiring my dog walker. Cause I can't, you know, something off your plate. Um, and, and figure out what is the easiest thing to, to let go. And sometimes it's the private things. So it's like, if I'm going to be at school, then I'm getting secret grocery delivery. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know, so at least, you know, that's not anyway. Um, live near family. That's a big one. And I mm. don't, unfortunately, my family lives in a, you know, thousand miles away from me. But I think about that a lot because if I had my sisters and my mom close to me, then this would make, you know, my balance, my work-life balance so much easier. And the research, you know, the research actually shows that people are more satisfied with their life if they live closer to their family. Um, And so, you know, I think that's a big part of it is more hands on deck. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was about to literally mention that before. Do you think a large part of this problem is contributed but to the fact that we don't live close to our families anymore? You know, like you said, you're an example of being a thousand miles away. I'm currently in Mexico. My family live in the UK. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. we don't live by anymore. Whereas that was a very, very normal part of, you know, growing up and having your children, then having your, like your kid's grandmother there and then an auntie and an uncle who were all within a five mile radius. And you might think that this problem might not be such a challenge if it was like a shared responsibility of bringing up the children as a unit versus just two parents in a household, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, you know, we're kind of used to falling back on that. Um, and now we're relying on, on strangers to, that's the outsource. Um, mm-hmm. That's and, true. You know, that brings mo- a whole different us. set of evolutionary psychology problems yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. So that's, that's a separate problem. <laughs> Um, to overcome, but you know, when you're living near family, even living in small groups, um, you know, just maybe like, you know, distantly related or not related at all, but you still had these same shared goals. Um, and you needed to cooperate in order to succeed as a group. And so, you know, we're, you know, now we're finding ourselves in a situation where it's just so different and nobody has the kind of vested interest in your children that, uh, like you do, except for maybe some, uh, your mom or your sisters or, you know, other kin. And when we don't have that, because our careers take us everywhere, you know, and so all of these little things chip away at our mental and physical health, all of these little things that have to do with the mismatch between, you know, how drastically different our modern world is from what our brain is used to operating within. Absolutely. And what about the conflict within a relationship? You mentioned, obviously, keep your social circle tight so you don't feel the pressure of judgment from other places. And also having the family nearby is definitely going to contribute to helping in this sense. But what about the conflict that it brings to the relationship? You mentioned that when the woman starts to earn a little bit more, that's when issues start to arise in certain relationships. So how do we keep that under control and maintain a healthy relationship, especially if at the same time, I feel like if you, and maybe if we take ego out the equation, if you've chosen a woman or a man to be with you, 
you want to see them succeed, you want to see them do well.、Mm-hmm. However, obviously, when the reality kicks in, it might not be such a reality anymore. So, how do we、yeah. keep that in place—a healthy, solid relationship where you're working as a team and a unit versus starting to compete with each other? That's a really good question.、Um, and so, I think it requires a lot of. Introspective inner work, if you will, because、um, you know these, you know these preferences and motivations are kind of knee jerk, you know that 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 come and and create discord within a within a marriage.、Um, I would advise、um, any person,、um, but I think you know top of mind as women that often marry men who have already advanced pretty far in their career and maybe further than you. Like that is the stage where you really need to be having these conversations and brushing up on your communication style and really develop a rhythm of communication where everybody, can, both parties, can be vulnerable and speak, you know, their your truth and feel comfortable and hear each other. And、um, and so, you know, for men. You know, it's 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 listening to your partner, and for women, it's listening to your partner. And then when you ask for a, a change or help, or you know something that is upsetting or that you didn't like, you know, list some positive things along with that. I mean, positive feedback. We talk about this in actually our, our MBA classes. Is that you know people are suckers for flattery. So if you give them a couple of compliments and then ask them something, they're more likely to comply with what you've asked of them because, you know, they want to sort of they they want to bask in that glory of of how you how you see them in a positive light. And so, you know, I guess you know those are kind of like my little the tidbits. It's just like you before and and ideally before kids even enter the picture, you and your partner really have a solid, you know. Pathway for communicating with each other, and also respect each other as individuals. And I know that I often have to sometimes step back and be like, my partner is an individual, and I am happy when good things happen for them. And I married them, or you know, I'm in a relationship with them because I value their education, I value their creativity, creativity, and their skills. And if they're happy, you know. That that will make me happy, you know. So all of these things that, you know, are basically workarounds for our, you know our knee jerk reaction that our, our our brain is giving us to be like, well, wait a minute, I I feel weird about the situation where you're here, you're making more, and I'm making less, and I feel like less of a man, or I feel like less of a woman because I'm not, I can't do all of the childcare stuff. I mean, I you know when we talk about it, Elliot, I feel so bad for married couples. <laughs> With children, because I know this. <laughs> I know this happens a lot,、um, and you know we see that as women move up the corporate ladder, they're more likely to become divorced. Not true for men,、um, but for women, that that is the case. And I think that there is this, you know, this this discord that's created by wanting to stick to the,、um, you know, the norms. And when you're doing something counter normative, it just feels weird because you know that, like, wait, this is not how society works. And if we're not doing what society, how what society values, then we're going to be ostracized. And that was, you know, or just looked looked at weird. And looked at weird was a death sentence for ninety nine percent of human history. So we we think about other people when we're trying to make a decision about our lives. So you know, all of these things kind of like s- snowball. But yeah, I guess just communication, just to be aware of all of these things. Honestly, it really helps because when you know how the game is rigged, it makes the stress and you know the things that you're going to bump up against、um, easier to handle because you recognize, okay, I'm feeling this, and I know that that this is why. Let's see if I can work through this feeling. Absolutely, and we're speaking a lot about people who are currently in relationships or marriages, for example. Do you think a large part of it as well is maybe having an honest reflection with yourself, maybe bringing out your journal and starting to think about partner selection as well? Because I think it's quite interesting. A lot of the things that many people are maybe attracted to when they first meet a person end up. 
being mm. the thing that, that they then dislike about that person later down the line. That woman really liked that man's ambition until she realized that means he's 60 hours at work or I love the amount of money he makes, but then I realize he's on his phone all the time and vice versa as well. So do you think partner selection is a very big part of that? And also maybe not rushing into decisions as well, because once you have a child, then someone has to look after it. So maybe yeah. that's another factor and probably part of the reason why so many women are getting to the age of 30 without having children now as well, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think women should stay single until they are find a partner who is all in fully 100% committed to, to equity if, you know, if, if, if that is what they're looking for. And, um, and, you know... I don't know. It took me a long time to figure out, you know, exactly what my ideal mate would look like because it was that trial and error, like, you know, selecting for one trait and then realizing that if you take this benefit, there's going to be this cost. Mm -hmm. And then, and then that benefit starts to disappear in terms of its luster or shine because of the negative stuff. And then it's like, wow, I was just really attracted to this person and now I just can't stand them for this trait that I <laughs> I loved. <laughs> I you know, I I think we've all kind of like experienced that or or you know, heard about others that have experienced that. So, um, you know, it does take maybe a, you know, some trial and error figuring out, you know, okay, that didn't work out. So maybe, you know, may, you know, how can I find a, a middle ground or maybe it's, you know, something else or I don't know. But yeah, being mindful of, you know, what you need in a partner. And maybe it is journaling about, you know, what are your, you know, must haves. And then thinking about like, do those must haves come with anything that, you know, are they correlated or associated with any trait that would be something I wouldn't be able to deal with? Like, yeah, you have this like high pressure job, but you're never around. So you know, I, I, I talk with my girlfriends every now and then, and we're all, you know, single and divorced. (laughs) And we wrote a paper called why women divorce. Why? Yeah. So, and it has a lot to do with what we're talking about, but they're like, Oh, you know, I'm going out with this guy and he has a big job and they say a lot of big jobs. So big jobs come with a lot of pressure. And so a man with a big job, you know, in his forties and fifties isn't, you know, Maybe in 10 years, he'll have a lot of time to sit around and doing the laundry, but not right now, you know? And so, and maybe that's okay. Cause you don't have kids. Like, I guess that's a different topic. Like, you know, when people hit middle age, now that the kids are gone, you know, a lot of times their mate preferences and priorities do change. That's a completely different topic, Elliot. I'm sorry. But yeah, I think that women should stay single until they find a partner that is hundred percent committed to the vision of that you, you have for yourself. And I don't know if we want to talk about this, but I often say freeze your eggs. Let's dive in. Freeze them. Yeah. So this is a technology that, you know, we have now and it's been perfected. And um, I know a lot of women, a lot of my graduate students who are now, you know, junior faculty members at university, they're freezing their eggs. Uh, because, so they don't feel like, oh, gosh, I've got to get tenure and then I've got to, you know, I don't know if this guy's the one and I don't want to. And I wish that I had had that because I kind of felt like when I turned 30, I was like, all right, if I want kids, I've got to make a selection. I can't just, you know, I can't just peruse, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. forever. I've got to make, make a commitment to somebody here. And, and then, and that's when you kind of stop thinking about like, oh, these traits, like really thinking about them in terms of your partner for life. It's just like, so the pressure is off. Um, but yeah, reproductive technology, I mean, I guess, you know, we can, there's there's costs and benefits, but I see that this really does take the pressure off of women to freeze your eggs. I would have done it had I thought about it or had, you know, it had been more mainstream when I was, you know, 30. Um, and I would really encourage women to, when they're at their gynecologist, that if they haven't had children yet, check your ovarian reserves. This is measured by your follicular, follicular stimulating hormone, and it can be a predictor of when you're going to go through menopause. I mean, it is a predictor, 
Um, and so, you know, like, oh my God, I might have like five good years. Um, and that is, that varies between women. So, um, I recommend that too, but yeah. And, and it's, you know, I guess there, there's a little bit of cost to, you know, taking hormones and harvesting, you know, 15 eggs, but it, it's, you know, it's not horrible. And then you have a little bit of a, a cushion. And there's also a much bigger cost to having children much earlier than you wanted to with a man who maybe isn't the person that you can see your future with being, yeah. right? So I think that, like you said, there's trade-offs right. from that perspective. And you mentioned earlier, you said, do women want careers? And the answer to that question you said was yes. And do you think that most women actually want children? Or do you think a lot of the pressure is placed on by this clock that's ticking saying, okay, as you approach your 30s, you know, it's all kind of going to go down here and in a certain way. So let's say that woman had an unlimited ability to, or they had a, a very, very easy access to freezing their eggs, for example. Do you think half as many women would have children? Or do you think that they would maybe get to a certain age and be like, well, actually, no, I don't even want to. It's just more down to the fact that we're yeah. within that time frame. Yeah, I think it would. I think it would end up that many women would choose not to have children because one thing we do know from many, many studies is that people we're, our brains are are wired to respond to scarcity. So a ticking clock, we studied this all the time in, you know, in marketing, <laughs> because it's like only only two left, or only, yeah. you know, the t clock is ticking, um, door busters, you know, get them, they're going, going, gone, any, you're gonna miss out. And that's what's happening with with women's reproduction. I mean, we lose it at, you know, an age, I mean, men never lose it, you know, really, and uh, women do. And so now there's the clock. And what we know is that uh, things to really love something is to learn that it's going away. So, so even women who might be questioning, like, am I the type of that wants to be a mother or not, just to know that your opportunity is going to be gone it shines a new light on children. So it makes it look more positive. Like it becomes rosier and you see it like, well, maybe I do. I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, when somebody ghosts you, it's like you might not even cared about the person, but the fact that they vanished and now they're inaccessible, you start liking them more or thinking about why you become real, you know, <laughs> obsessed with things that are going away. Um, so I think that if women can freeze their eggs, that's going to take the pressure off for sure, and give them time to make that decision. Yeah, and that's the thing, there really isn't a, f a lot of time, right? When you think about maybe a typical path of going for university, doing some form of extended study, then being in the early stages of your career, getting to a certain good point in your career, you're looking at getting to the back end of your 20s and your early 30s, and then you're like, oh, wait a minute, I haven't met a man yet. And then it's like, I like, you know, I've only got a couple of years before this, but I'm reaching the peak in my career. So as you mentioned, I think that that could be a feasible option for many. And speaking of like an ideal, uh, let's say, rose petal uh, reality and a beautiful, beautiful idea of what a relation can look like when it comes to a nice balance between a woman thriving, a complete family unit, what roles does both the man and woman have to take within that? relationship in order for it to be thriving and for the woman not to feel this way and also for the man not to feel like anything's been taken away from him as well because i think we've placed a lot of the emphasis on the females yeah. in a much deserved way but also there's also an element where a man might want to you know be very very proactive in the fatherhood role but also knows that he has to provide for the family as well in a large way maybe a higher proportion yeah. than his wife does yeah that's a good question and i think that this is goes back to you know having that great communication and, um, able to be, you know, frank and honest with each other, um, from the get go, maybe before children again are brought into the picture. And then thinking about like a plan for, you know, there are some guys who like doing laundry, you know, it's just kind of like they can zone out and listen to their podcast or whatever. Women too. I mean, I, that I don't mind laundry, you know, you can think of it like, I don't mind laundry. I don't mind, you know? And so one of the things I talk to, uh, people about is, um, thinking about, you know, uh, organize, like having people specialize, having people, having partners specialize in certain things, um, you know, over others. And then if there's like one thing like, oh, but I'll never clean the bathroom and well, I'm not going to clean the bathroom. 
then um, either trade off or hire hire someone to clean the bathroom if you can, you know. And sometimes, um, you know, highly educated, you know, dual income Western couples can find the means to to have that happen. Um, so, but yeah, it's um, you know, it's it it's tough. But again, like the only thing that can happen really is just to communicate with each other. And I was there was a a piece of research on, you know, what do stay at home dads? So these are men who, who are full-time stay at home dads. What do they spend their time at home doing? And what the, that article, the study showed is that many of these men uh, spend a larger proportion of the time on male centric housework, like yard work um, or fixing things around the house. And so that kind of like takes priority. And then if they get to the laundry or the dishes, uh, you know, that would be secondary. And what often happens is that those, that other ha- housework is, is left for the women. So, um, so, so what that means is, is that, you know, the communication has to be there. And also sometimes women, you know, I know that this happened to me is that, you know, I have a different, uh, standard for, for how I like things to be cleaned than, you know, my partner. So, so, it, and that can operate both ways. Like men might have a standard for how other things. And and so again, it's just, you know, the way that you communicate, maybe like, you know, three positive things, then your negative thing, or just say, you know, Hey, when I come home, um, you know, I know that you tidy up, but you don't clean the sink and, uh, and, you know, and just, you know, sort of approach it in, in, in a way that you've developed your, you know, communication rhythm with your partner. And sometimes that can't be overcome, you know, but it's just two, you're, you're two different people coming together. So there's going to be, it's not just about housework. It's that's happens a lot. So, um, anyway, that, that, the, the household discord thing, it's really hard when you have kids, it's unbelievably difficult. So this isn't something anybody can avoid um, in, in, in any any income level. Yeah, I was going to say maybe the things that we should stop looking for, are like, well, how much does my partner earn versus how does my partner use their finances and does it align with me? And maybe it's not about like, oh, they look at their ambition, but maybe look at their open mind and their growth mindset, right? Because if I think that that's where you're going to start butting heads right it's when it comes to well it's my way this is the way i've always done things and i'm not willing to change that's when conflicts yeah. communicate like communication breaks down yeah. and ego is going to come in right and so that's a, an excellent point and it made me think of something that I, is really important at the beginning of a relationship before you have kids is to to notice what happens when you ask your partner to um that uh, to do something you need like i when we when i come home i need 10 minutes to myself or when i come home i want to sit at the table and just have a 10 minute conversation with you and see if they meet you there if they forget the next day or then it's like off the table um uh, you know and sometimes um and this for, for men and women if you say you know i when when i get home I feel like we're disconnected. So I really need to, you know, it would be great if we can um, sit at the table and have a 10 minute conversation. And then, and because here's why I need it. And then, you know, have that person repeat back to you what they heard. Cause sometimes you hear things different than what the other person meant. You know, I hear that you're, you know, you don't like to want to be in this relationship or whatever. It's like, no, that's not, you know, so test those waters early. And then notice how they meet you when you when you ask for something and if they meet you. Because a lot of, you know, cu- couples who are meant for each other, they, they tend to want to meet each other and they care about each other and, and prioritize each other's happiness. Yeah. And that's what I think we have to remember is that we're like two imperfect humans coming together to try and essentially accommodate each other's imperfections and each other's way of doing things. So I think a little bit of compassion on both ends could probably go a long, long way. And that's something I've noticed in my relationship is like for the first time ever, I've genuinely looked out for what is their needs versus mine. And even in a, you know, let's, let's be honest in a selfish way in the past, I'd be like giving them the answer that sounded like the good one for them, but actually worked really, really well for me and for quote unquote us. Right. And I think that that's when you know that 
you are really committed to a certain person, you've dropped your ego. It's like, oh, well, actually, you know, forget myself for a second, take myself out of the equation. Not all the time, because I'm just as important in this relationship as them, but what yeah. genuinely works out best for them and in a backwards kind of way, it tends to work out best for you as well, because ultimately their happiness their fulfillment and everything along those lines is kind of the secret to uh, happiness together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you are growing with and alongside another person that is, you know, independent and, you know, and it's hard to take your just like you said, you know, and, and that's, we have, we have a brain that's on high alert for, you know, any threats, including like, could this be about me, you know, that they want to go to Las Vegas with their friend they're, they're, they're whatever, you know, whatever thing it's like, um, you know, and I think especially a young age was we're trying to figure out like what, what's a threat in a relationship and what isn't and how, you know, to, you know, really, to be in a relationship, honestly, it all comes down to you need to be self assured, you need to do a lot of work on yourself and loving yourself. And then um, being able to, to before you're able to apply that to another person. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. So yeah, no, I truly could. I as agree. you mentioned, like, the work needs to be done first, because I think even more challenging these days is the fact that technology modern dating and all these different types of things mean that kind of we can end up in the relationship that we could be very happy in but we're almost more emotionally traumatized along the way because of like I said there wasn't really the ability to be ghosted if you dated the person in the same town but now if they're uh, on tinder on the other side of the world then it's pretty easy to get ghosted and it's pretty easy to go yeah. through these experiences so you know potentially both sets of couple the individuals come to their relationship with even lower self-esteem than they might have done in the past so yeah, yeah as you mentioned there's a lot of like having a compassion being willing to work mm. on yeah, work on the fact that you're both imperfect and you're coming together, but yeah. at the same time, you are your own responsibility. But that's that's another topic in itself. But speaking of other topics as well, you mentioned that your most yeah. recent book and your research is done on kind of the gap between where we stand from an evolutionary psychology standpoint and our old brains versus our modern reality. What has been some of the things that have surprised you since you've gone down the route of looking into this and the research that you've done? Well, you just mentioned something that really was an aha moment for me because because we are coming into relationships like completely traumatized mm -hmm. by the social world that we live in. So our social world is the mega predator. You know, we, you know, we don't have wild boars chasing us anymore, but we do have our social world that has gone in, as far as our brain is concerned, absolutely haywire. Because like you said, to be ghosted, that was a death sentence. That's abandonment. And that's how your brain is seeing it, even though it's just like, I'm not going to return this text. At some level, that is an abandoning situation. And it sends your body into a state of stress, red alert, you know. And so if we're perpetually having these disappointments, and it's mathematically impossible to avoid it, because we are encountering so many people, that, you know, you are building up these little like, mini traumas just by people rejecting you and you come in like, like so traumatized and, and, and like with PTSD, you know, I, I, that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, a lot of young people are displaying the same kind of symptoms as, you know, veterans of war with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder from war without ever having seen traumatic violence. But we've seen traumatic social, emotional violence, if you will. And so a lot of that has to come with like people just deciding that they're going to not ever contact us again. You know, anyway, I thought about this. So that's part of what I'm writing about. And one of the big themes of, of what I'm looking at is, is the devastating effects of our social world, particularly, you know, for our young people, social media. So when you asked about young people, I was like, this is a group of kids that is skyrocketing in terms of deficits in mental health. And what the data seem to show is that the biggest predictor is social media use, um, which they all do, you know, TikTok. I mean, they're on their phones all the time. This is just like metastasized our social, you know, network and these developing brains are trying to figure out where they stand. This is a, a time where our brain is a sponge when we're a kid and we're getting an idea of what's my environment like 
how do I have to adapt my behavior? Because if you think about it, thousands of years ago, you know, your environment was, okay, this is where we live. This is our like small village and we might be nomadic, but we don't go very far and we see people who are pretty similar to us. And if you see somebody different from you, that's a threat. That's a, that's an enemy. Um, and you know, you're picking up on all these little cues, but now it's like, Hey, what's my social world? Like, Oh my God, everybody hates me. I mean, that's the modern <laughs> equivalent. And you're like, damn, because you hang your hat on the everybody hating you, even if it's like, you know, three haters and 10 people who love you. Uh, our brain is wired to, 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 to pinpoint the haters, um, and to sort of embody that. And so that's a big reason why we're seeing, you know, increases in social anxiety and depression among, amongst, um, adolescents and, and young adults. Um, and a lot of it ties back to, you know, social media, when social media came on the scene. So I think in, in a way, younger generations are kind of sc- screwed more than we are. Not that we're not, because we had a huge mismatch, too. We were still living with a lot of people, but now it's just changed so much. It's like too much. So anyway, I, I what you said there was like, I'm like, I'm gonna, I, I need to think about what you said more, because... That's something we got to keep in mind. We're, we're coming together in any relationship with another human who's, who's been through the ringer and has a lot of, you know, triggers. Absolutely. And then you got to learn about those triggers and then you've got to make them feel safe and, you know, and being able to move forward in the relationship, um, feeling safe when those triggers come up. Yeah. And to expand on that point even more now, you've said it, you've made me think about my own thought even more is that, you know, imagine how many relationships you might have encountered in an intimate setting, maybe 50, 60, 60 years ago before technology was really existing. Maybe you dated a couple of people in your high school, you met one or two people in college and university, but then you kind of found your match maybe, let's say between one and five people later. Imagine if you don't get into a long-term relationship until you're 29, 30, there's a chance that you could have being in some form of intimate relationship with with anywhere from one to a thousand people, to be completely honest, which is just like astronomical compared to the amount of people you would have encountered in the past. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and then, you know, you can also think about like, what is choice overload? What does that do to the Uh brain? Um, That's one thing we've also looked at in, in our research because, um, the default is I want more choices, um, because more choice is always better than zero choice. And so we want to have options, but then we're never really satisfied with any one option, um, because there's so much more, more fish in the sea, you know? And so that can, um, have an impact on our satisfaction too, coupled with the fact that, you know, we do meet so many people and we get rejected by many of those people. Um, but I don't know if this is what your point was going to be. It's like, well, were we more satisfied before social media and before like meeting a thousand people instead of just five? Yeah, from my perspective, it was more down the route of the emotional traumatization, right? It's like, well, you know, imagine how many people that you've gone through, like clearly they didn't end up being your partner. So maybe some of those interactions were fantastic, but I'm willing to bet that 90% weren't, you know, like, and you maybe had 10% of like some good memories, but 90% of them were not. So it's like, okay, well, um, and also imagine like, we kind of know that maybe the men are going to like a certain percentage of men are going to have access to a certain percentage of women based on the studies and hypergamy and all that type of stuff. So it almost feels like, you know, let's say all the quote unquote chads in the world, right? Like the amount of emotional traumatization they're doing to all the women who are then eventually meeting their partner. So that was more my perspective. It's like, okay, well, you only had to go through three or four breakups before, but maybe now you've gone through 20 to 50 breakups before you actually finally found your match. Yeah. And I just don't think we're built for that. I don't think we're built for that much rejection, honestly. Um, because, you know, I, because at some point you're, you, you just start to play dead, meaning like you disassociate and you just kind of walk through life without really being present because you, that same mechanism that would have a animal play dead from too much stress is, is actually coming online through all of these social disappointments. And, you know, so you have this person that's like super traumatized and really not in touch with what what their triggers are and why they're traumatized it just feels normal they feel normal so it's you know this whole 
idea of, you know, wellness, it is recovering from major reconstructive surgery after like a 50 car pileup, you know, I mean, it's, it's so hard to excavate your inner world because, you know, you have a, a beautiful brain that rightly so has really switched you into stress overdrive because, um, because all of this rejection would be tantamount to death for you. You wouldn't survive. You'd just like, all these people hate me and don't want to be with me. It's like, oh my God, I've got rejected 50 times. So all of that, you know, all of these hacks and journaling and talking to yourself in a certain way, they're workarounds to try to, you know, to try to ease the, you know, to try to make the nervous system feel safe again. And it's a constant, like you have to have that practice for the rest of your life you know, talking well to yourself. Yeah, I was going to say, in regards to what you mentioned regarding people hating you, imagine how that feels. Like, imagine, like, a real-life person hating you times that by three. That's pretty damn intense, right? To actually have someone really, really dislike you and everything that you feel from that as well. And if what you're suggesting is correct, like, our brains still perceive that, like, real-life people are hating us, you know? So no wonder the intensity of that one comment where someone puts you down on a YouTube video or an Instagram post, it, that severity mm-hmm. is enormous, even though it maybe doesn't have the same impact to the, the, yeah. to the person typing it. It's not the same. You know, it takes a lot of energy to hate someone in real life than it does to hate them over the internet, right? But the way that we perceive it, it's almost like the same yeah. intensity. So that's why it's so intense. And you mentioned a few workarounds and I hate to ask super vague questions, but if you could give me your three best workarounds to kind of navigating this very, very challenging, existential, but current and very real problem, what would you say that your top three are? So I kind of put them into three buckets. And I'll just talk about my first bucket, which is triage, because that's like ER coming in from the battlefield of life that has stressed you out. And you don't even know where to begin because you have left your body a long time ago, because, you know, you're, you're basically a walking dead person. And that feels a lot like doing life, you know, it feels a lot like where we all are. Um, and so, and it could take, you know, a few years to really, you know, kind of get a sense of how it feels to, you know, become present and not be, you know, out to lunch, you know, it, it takes a while. And so I always, I guess my top three would be, um, have a practice every morning of sitting in silence and breathing. Um, even when it feels silly and it doesn't feel like it's working, it will start to work. And, you know, getting a journal, I use the five minute journal, but there are many others out there that have prompts about, you know, talking to yourself in um, positive ways, like, and this really does work, because what you're doing is retraining your brain to see yourself as you want to be seen. I mean, we are as we're seen. So if you see a comment about you being, you know, fat and ugly, you're like, oh, oh, my God, your brain's reacting like that's the truth. And it, it, it isn't, your brain is going to tell you a story about, you know, what that other person thinks, because according to your brain, that person really matters, you know, it's really hard. So, so, you know, taking those, so journaling, breathing, sitting in silence, that's, you know, an, uh, the first step on your way to meditation, which really helps calm the waters enough, because, you know, when you have a feeling that's the first thing you have is a feeling about something like, I don't know, but you know, the fact that, that like, you know, my boyfriend wants to go to this party. I don't, I don't like it. You just feel like something, something happens when you hit in your body, when you hear that, that's the feeling. And then you put a story on it. Like they're not into me, you know, there must be another woman there or there must be. So you have to like, you kind of have to feel the feeling and drop the story. And for a long time, I didn't know what that meant, but it meant, um, you know, take that feeling and try to calm it in yourself, like get the practice enough. So it's like, I'm feeling this. I don't know if it's another woman. It might be, but whatever happens, I'm okay. And things are always working out for me. So it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's a lot of talking that little storyteller in your brain down and befriending it and knowing the difference between the storyteller in your brain and, and who you really are. Um, and sometimes that, you know, it takes a while to differentiate the two. It did for me. Um, and then, um, number one is just like your, your, you know, get exercise because only exercise complete, like that's the number one thing to complete the stress cycle. Cause we're like, 
We're not completing it. We're just stress balls. And so across human history, the stress cycle was completed when you were maybe got debt eaten by a boar, but usually it ended. And so it's used to ending and falling back into the rhythm of going between our, you know, our excitatory nervous system and our, you know, rest and digest nervous system. And so exercising can send it back into a resting state. Those, that's my tips. Christina, I love those tips. They're amazing, especially the second one on kind of having to tell your brain who you actually really are. And it seems a little bit like almost cliche and a little bit very, very small, but at the same time, your information about who you are is quite often coming from the world. It's coming from other people's perceptions of who you are, not actually who you are. So, you know, just by reminding yourself, like, wait a minute, no, this is who I really am. And just quieting your mind as just saying, well, I'm not all these things that everyone says I am, but I'm actually this, or maybe I'm some of those things, but these are the things I choose for myself to be. So I think that's super powerful. And thank you for those tips. And thank you for this conversation today. It's been unbelievably fascinating. I could probably keep you here for three hours, but I'll respect your time from that perspective. So if people want to find you and keep up with the work, that you're doing, where is the best place for them to go? Uh, the best place to go is, uh, well, I'm at Christina Durante on Twitter and I'm at Christina underscore Durante on Instagram. And you can find me on the Rutgers Business School website. Just Google Christina Durante. That's the first thing that comes up. And that website is up to date and has all my papers there. Perfect. Christina Durante, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.